Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. This is Alf speaking and today I've got my friend Brent Johnson as guest of the show. Hey Brent, how are you doing? I'm good. I just had a couple of coffees with milk and it's a, it's a good day. Jeez, man, it's 4 p.m. It's not allowed. How, how many times do I need to say this? No milk after 11. Okay, just because it's you, I'm, I'm going to allow the exception. It's only, it's only 10.15 here, so I'm, I'm, I'm allowed. Oh, that's that's fine. That's fine. Then then we can talk again. Let's do the show, actually. Right. So, Brent, um, over the last few days, we're recording on October the 5th, 2022. We have seen uh, the dollar taking a pause or actually repricing down a little bit. And you are quite the authority when it comes to chatting about the dollar, both long term and short term. So let's talk about the short term picture for a second. Has something really changed uh, in your assessment of the dollar in this part of the cycle? You know, I don't think anything's really changed, but I think perception has perhaps changed a little bit. Um, you know, over the last, let's just call it 10 days, the dollar had both a 5% move higher or 4% move higher and now a 4% pullback. Um, the pullback has honestly not really surprised us too much. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, last Wednesday, the morning of the high, we, we even, I tweeted something out and we, we were, I was talking with some, some colleagues and we were saying, you know, this has gotten a little bit ahead of itself probably. And we're getting to the level where central banks and monetary authorities are going to start trying to influence what happens going forward. And while I don't think that the monetary authorities and central banks and governments can solve this problem, they can certainly you know, push it around in the short term. And, you know, when the Bank of England came out and intervened in the market, I think it just scared a lot of people. And they said, well, we're not really sure what they're going to do and how big they're going to do. So we're just going to pull back and kind of reassess. And so, you know, the, the yen has, has rallied, um, um, the euro rallied, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the, the, the pound has rallied. And so, you know, the dollar pulled back. But it, what I kind of find kind of funny is even over the last couple of days, I've gotten a couple you know, DMs and messages on Twitter and posts on, you know, various things and saying, well, that was it. Now, wh wh where are the dollar bulls at? They all went away. And I'm, I'm thinking, you know, we're at 110 on the DXY from the upside. Now, who a year ago would have, uh, would have imagined that, right? And um, so I think it's kind of a natural time for the dollar to take a pause. Um, well, like I said, we're starting to get some intervention from governments, which is going to happen. Um, the dollar had a, was up twenty percent in a year, so so it's due for a breather, right? Other central banks are now starting to raise rates a little bit, or at least trying. Um, they're having trouble because, like the thing with the Bank of England, right? Uh, they can't let rates go too high. Um, but I think there's a perception, as there has been all year, that the pivot is right around the corner. Powell can't keep raising rates. This month he's going to pivot. The, today he's going to pivot. Tomorrow he's going to pivot. And so everyone keeps trying to front run this pivot. And what I, and, and as a result, then the, the dollar pulls back when they try to front run this pivot. What, what I find kind of interesting is every time they front run this pivot, it allows him to keep going. In other words, the, the front running of the pivot is to a certain extent self-defeating. Um, because as long as markets are holding up, as long as credit markets are functioning, as long as it, you know, inflation is high and unemployment is low, He's got the green light to keep doing what he's doing. And so it, it, I think it's, a, it's, it's interesting from a mental perspective and a psychological perspective as much as it is an economic perspective. Yeah. It reminds me of uh, my piece in July named Fed Pivot My Ass. I mean, seriously, <laughs> this, this guy just can't do it. He has one Monday, then he's going to go after that.
Well, you know, I, I remember when you when you put that out because I remember at the Fed meeting in July, I thought he was very clear, but everybody interpreted it as a pivot, and the market just took off. And, and you know, I'm I'm never going to say the market's wrong. The market's always right on that particular day, but I I just felt that they were misinterpreting what he said. Yeah. And you know, then he came out at Jackson Hole and basically changed his speech in order to say, listen, you guys did not listen to me in July. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to give you the sermon again. Yeah. And then his very first words at the recent Fed meeting press conference was nothing has changed since Jackson Hole. So he keeps reiterating and everybody keeps saying you're lying. <laughs> right? and, but I, I, it, It's really, it, to me, the interesting thing is that I don't think he could be more clear than he's being like most People will say, you know, the central bankers speak in riddles and, you know, Greenspan is famous for using, you know, complex wording in order to really kind of shade what was actually going on. I mean, Powell has been very explicit on what he plans to do. Yeah. Now, ultimately, I think he will fail. He's not going to be able to do it forever. But, you know, the people who say he's playing some game, I, I you know, he's to me, he's been very, very clear on what he's planning to do. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. It's been relatively straightforward if you understand his incentive scheme so far, but talking about the past is only as useful. I want to have a chat with you about um, other central banks trying to stop the process of the dollar appreciating. Yeah. So we've seen lately uh, attempts from all over the place, one can say, basically from Japan, from Switzerland. Um, the Bank of England was basically... Um, effectively trying to backstop the bond market rather than directly the FX market, but they also intervened in the markets, right? right? So I want to get a big picture view from your perspective, Brent. How do you look at these interventions? Do you think they can be successful? And who are the countries which are the best position to try and, and stop the bleeding against the dollar? Sure. So I, I think in general, as a general statement, no, they won't. The, the interventions will not work in the long term. Um, I think the markets are bigger than you know government forces and ultimately the markets will win but governments are very strong and they're very powerful and they can it's amazing at their ability to kick this can down the road so i'm not going to sit here and pretend that they can't continue to do it for a while longer uh, many people over the last 15 years have been proven wrong and wrong again that this is it right they can't do it anymore and yet somehow they do um so i don't think that they can solve it but they can in the short term um, influence markets. And that's why they do it. But but what I would also say is I cannot find anywhere. If anybody can find this for me and send it to me, I'm, I'm happy to read it and I'm happy to you know publicly say I was wrong on this, but I can't find anywhere where a government had to intervene in a market only one time and that solved it, right? They always make the initial you know intervention. It works for a little while and then it doesn't work and they have to come back and do it again. And so I think that's what's going on with Japan. I think that's what's going on with the UK. And it's, it's what's going on with the Fed too, right? I mean, this has all been going on for at least 15 years now, depending on how you define the beginning of it. Um, but, you know, the, or you could go all the way back to 71 when we did the temporary uh, abandonment of the gold standard, right? Yeah. <laughs> Nothing is ever temporary or it's, it's, it, it, it lasts forever. Um, and so that's why I say that, you know, that they can certainly influence it in the meantime, but, but in the long term, I don't think it's possible because what, what you're seeing now, and for people who aren't as familiar with this, you're now seeing governments in, intervene in both the currency market and the bond market. 
but but those are cross current those are cross purposes you you can't save them both you have to sacrifice one or the other um because the tools with which they fight one hurts the other right and so um at some point they're going to have to choose and i am of the belief and i think most people are of the belief that ultimately they will sacrifice the currency because if they sacrifice the bond market they're basically sacrificing the banking system and then you have just yeah. a complete collapse, right? So they'll fight it and they'll protest against it, but ultimately they'll let the currency go. Let's talk about Japan for a second, just to make an example, right? Let's go country by country. So Japan basically says, I don't care about what you guys are doing there. I'm not going to raise rates. Uh, inflation in Japan has been negative. Core inflation over the last 20 years has been minus 0.2% on average. I see some inflation coming my way, not scared at all, going to keep rates very low. And obviously, you know, these leads together with bad terms of trades because of energy prices are higher leads to basically the yen depreciating. Now, the Bank of Japan is not even basically it's trying to defend its bond market, if you wish, by effectively pinning 10 year rates at 0.25% and FX is bleeding. And now they say, Brent, okay, let's go and let's make sure that the yen doesn't bleed too. So they're trying to basically tap both release valves, right? As you described, one is the bond market, the other is the effects, the bond market is spinned there. Now they're going to tap the release valve on, 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 the, on the yen. And you say they're going to be hardly successful. So let me throw, uh, let me play devil's advocate for a second. One way for a, a country to defend its effects temporarily, at least, is to try and use effects reserves, right? And to say, we've accumulated a gazillion bazillion of dollars over the last 20 years, we're going to sell some right here and there. And I had a look at Japan and they have net effect reserves after repos and effects derivatives. So basically the net amount of reserves they have on their balance sheet is roughly $1 trillion, which covers 18 months of imports. Yeah. It's a relatively long period of time. So based just on this assumption, why would Japan uh, not be able to stem these outflows for quite a long time? I mean, do you see that as a possibility or sooner or later they'll need to give up anyway? Well, the, this is this is a very good point, and yes, in the short term, they they can they can pin both the rates and the the FX rates and the and the interest rates because mm -hmm. they do have these dollar reserves. Um, but as I said, it will eventually end. And and here's the thing: is as you know, those reserves get spent in defense of the currency, the longer it goes down, the less the less tools or less weapons they have to fight it. Right. True. So let's say, so maybe they can do it for nine months. Maybe they can do it for a year, but let's fast forward a year. And let's say the yen has gone, you know, it's pulled back and instead of at 145 or 146, whatever it's at today, it's now back at 130. Let's, let's say they're able to, you know, strengthen the yen 15%. Yeah. Well, now you're still at 130, which is not great compared to where it was a year ago. And your reserves are down 60 or 70%. Yeah. Right. And so then everybody looks at it and says, okay, so yeah, right now, when you look at it today, they have plenty of tools to defend it. But a year from now, when all the bond vigilantes and the, you know, the Stanley Druckenmillers of the world take a look at this situation, what are they going to do? They're not just going to sit there and say, oh, well, we're going to be nice. We're going to play nice in the sandbox. You know, and so, and so that's how, that's how it then has the potential to, to really unravel quickly. Brilliant point, Brian. It's basically a fight against time. It's a time inconsistency. It's problem. a fight so, against time. It's a fight. It's, 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 exactly right. 
if inflation would slow down, actually, you would have a little bit of a relief, right? Because the Fed doesn't need to be that tough anymore and then et cetera, et cetera, right? So they get a little bit of a, of a, of a release valve. That's the time advantage one can have or the time inconsistency advantage. There's also a disadvantage, as you say. So basically, you're saying, look, if you're a country that needs external funding one way or another, which in the case of Japan is not that bad because they export capital abroad, but if you take the UK... For example, they need external funding, both for goods and services, both for financial accounts, etc. Yeah, then honestly, once your reserves are depleted, what what is your weapon, right? So that there, right. Is, there is, yeah. And then, okay, and then not only that, but then, you know, we've all fast forwarded it, I don't know, nine months or a year. Let's say the dollar's back to 100 instead of 110. The yen's back to 130, the, the pound's back to 120, and the euro's at 110 or whatever it is, right? Um, but now, you know, the, the, like you said, or like we said, everybody, the weapons are gone, right? Or, or, they're, or they're vastly de- depleted. And now we get some kind of another kind of, I don't know, systemic shock, whatever it is. Maybe war breaks out. Maybe this energy crisis continues. Yeah. Um, and then we're in the same situation we are now from a, you know, volatility perspective, but everybody's tools are diminished. And so... And then what? Even then, how do they protect against it? And that's my point: is eventually they're going to have to choose between the the bond market and the currency market. But you know, the the point that we're I think the point that we're making here is kind of, in my opinion, the best case scenario, because for the for for to get to where we just talked about theoretically getting in a year, you basically would have to have the Fed engineer a soft landing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the, the problem with inflation is either you get a lot of, inf- it's very, so, sorry, I'm kind of jumping around, but let's just say we're at 8% inflation right now to, to get to where we just talked about getting, it would almost be like the fed would have to get inflation and CPI or, or their, 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 their inflation indicators to come down a half a percent every month for the next 10 months. And that would take inflation from 8% to four or 5%, just a very steady, you know, no volatility, slowly, 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 you know, uh, to get there. Um, and, and I just think we're at a place where it's really, really hard to engineer soft landing. The, the Fed can crush inflation. People that say the Fed cannot crush inflation, they can absolutely crush inflation. The problem is they might crush the whole global economy in the process. So I think we're kind of at this place where we've gotten these fits and these starts, these booms and these busts. I think it's very hard right now to engineer these very gradual moves. Because of all that's going on in the world, you know, not yeah. not not to mention, you know, the energy crisis and, and the military conflict that's going on. I mean, right now we're just talking about currency rates and and, and interest rates, right? Uh, we haven't talked about the geopolitical aspect, the the the, the supply chain aspect. Um, I mean, and there's there's all these variables out there that um, I don't know what's going to happen with these variables. I just don't believe the current Lead, global leadership has the skills to deal with whatever comes. Yeah. It also reminds me of people saying the Fed can't bring down inflation. I, I strongly disagree. And I agree with yeah. you, Brent, uh, on that observation. Empirically, if you look at the past 100 years, every time the inflation was very high and the Fed wanted to slow it down, 
they just sent us through a recession. And, the, and right. <laughs> fast forward 16 months later, that's what my analysis shows. Inflation actually dropped seven percentage points from the yeah. peak to the low after the recession. So it's 9% now, minus seven, conveniently 2% with the average recession. The problem is they're going to put us through a recession. That's actually yeah. one of the problems. Yeah. Now, the, 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 the question I have is, Brent, is there a, is there a sustainable way that you think dollar strength can actually fade away? So what are the conditions necessary in your framework to see the dollar weakening on a substantial basis over the next year or two years? Well, I think it could, I think it could fall over a year fairly easily, to be honest, for, for all the reasons we just talked about, you know, the fed plays nice in the sandbox, everybody kind of co coordinates, they work together and they kind of, um, the, the Fed takes their foot off the neck of the global economy, right? Um, I don't think they can engineer um, for two years or three years because to do that, they would actually have to exacerbate the inflationary pressures we're already seeing. Um, you know, the way that they get the dollar down for two or three years is to go back to QE, you know, pin rates low and do financial repression. Well, we've already got political and um, both political and economic pressures trying to keep them from doing that. Um, if we've already got 8% inflation and then we go back to, you know, high levels of QE and bailouts and stimulus checks, well, then I have a hard time seeing how, you know, inflation falls dramatically. Um, and so I think it's very hard for them to do. Um, this is probably a good time to say that a lot of people over the last couple of weeks, or even the last couple of months, have said, well, how does this all end, Brent? How do, they, how do they kill the milkshake? Doesn't QE kill the milkshake? And the interesting thing is QE doesn't kill the milk. QE is actually part of, quote unquote, the whole milkshake theory. I, you know, I have said several times that I think this plays out over two, three, four years, maybe up to 10 years. I don't think this is going to play out over the next six months and then I'll be over. And the way it plays out, the way it takes longer is that governments will interfere. You know, the Fed will go back to QE probably or some kind of stimulus program. And that might work for a while. Maybe it works for a year. Maybe it works for two years. But then I think we ultimately end up right back where we are now because the other countries are going to have to do the same. And just like post-COVID, think of everything that the Fed did post-COVID. And yet here we are at a 20-year high on the dollar. Um, the other thing is that even if we do have to go back and do QE like we did after COVID, there is not a scenario where the U.S. has to go back and do all this QE and all this stimulus and the rest of the world does not. There is not a scenario where U.S. growth slows dramatically and the rest of the world accelerates higher. It doesn't work that way. I'm sorry. It just I can't. It, nothing is impossible, but that is about as low a probability as you can come up with. And so the idea that the U.S. is going to do this in isolation and the rest of the world is just going to tighten monetary policy and grow their economies at the same time just doesn't make sense to me. But they can have these, these, you know, these starts and these stops and they can kind of trade back and forth. And, and as a result, you know, the dollar, go, the dollar went to 115 or 114. I can see it pull back to 100 and then it runs to 125 and then it pulls back to 112 and then it goes to 140 and then it pulls back to 120. And maybe that takes place over four or five years. You know, I don't know for sure, but the, the issue, well, the whole issue with the milkshake theory itself is that the only way that we get a sustainably lower dollar is if we do some kind of a plaza accord, reset the whole system, 
or the U.S. just unilaterally overnight devalues the dollar. There's nothing the rest of the world that that the rest of the world can do that would reset the dollar lower that didn't in the short term push it higher. If the rest of the world said we're no longer using the dollar and we're going to go to this parallel system or this other system, it would create a lot of chaos, a lot of volatility and probably military conflict. And in that short period of time of all that volatility and military conflict, the dollar would spike. Now, possibly after that, it crashes and it's no longer used. But the process of resetting the system is, in my opinion, or the process of de-dollarization is, in my opinion, not negative for the price of the dollar. Does that make sense? Like the only way, yes. the only way we get out of this is a stronger dollar. The flip side, let's pretend that they can engineer a multi-year devaluation or, or, or declining dollar index or dollar versus other currencies. If that happens, that perpetuates the system. That keeps the current system alive. That's what they would love to do, right? They would probably love to be able to keep the dollar between 90 and 110 over the next 10 years, right? And just kind of move it back and forth. Um, because that allows the world to keep functioning as it is. It allows the system to keep functioning as it currently is. The only thing that wrecks the system is the dollar spiking. And, and part of the reason is, is if the dollar were to start getting weak now, may, maybe it continues down for the next year. If that were to happen, my guess is that the rest of the world would do exactly what they did after 2020 when the dollar went from 102 to 90. They didn't use that period of relative dollar weakness to get out from underneath their dollar debt. They didn't pay down their dollar debt. They didn't stop transacting in dollars. They didn't stop using the euro dollar market for funding. They used more of it. They took out more dollar debt. They increased the amount of euro dollar transactions. So I think that would probably happen again. If we can go from 112 to I don't know, 97 on the dollar over the next 10 months, my guess is they will load up on dollar debt again. And so that just, and so then we hit the wall again and the dollar runs to 125. Um, I really think the, 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 the whole system to, to avoid, to eventually avoid a spiking dollar, I think the whole system needs to be reset. And I don't know exactly how that reset works. If it's another plaza accord, if they do some kind of global sovereign write off of the balance sheets, you know, the debt on the sovereign bank balance sheets. I'm not sure how they do it, but I think something like that is necessary to keep the risk of a rapidly rising dollar off the table. Very elegant um, metaphor, not metaphor, but reference you used, Brent, when you said, when the dollar depreciates, foreign, foreign countries do not use the window of opportunity to deleverage in dollar. They actually additionally add additional leverage to their balance sheet. Yeah. So I want to just cover this for a second. It's really important. You also tweeted something about this in the past, which I find I found fascinating and very insightful. You said effectively something like the, the dollar is the denominator of the problem. So the problem is the system is built on leverage, continuous leverage, continuous credit creation. Everybody who is outside the US needs and wants some of that leverage in dollar to make sure that the dollar sales of commodities, goods, services, whatever it is, actually can be levered up. So the entire system is leveraged on, on the very, very dollar at the end of the day. And every time, every time it becomes weaker, it's just an opportunity to take advantage of that, of that leverage. So that kind of reinforces the problem further and further. And so every time you get through a deleveraging process, 
it's every time harder and harder. So this concept where right now we are in the deleveraging process, look at global trades, look at Chinese real estate market, corporate credit, and whatever you want to talk about. What happens, Brandon, correct me if I'm wrong, is that when you delever a system that is based on the denominator being the dollar, you actually bid up the denominator. That's what the process of deleveraging is. And that what you're talking about now is really, it shouldn't be that difficult to grasp. And I, I'm not, to be, to be really honest, I'm not quite so sure why the whole dollar milkshake theory is that controversial to begin with. It's, it's just, I, all I'm doing is explaining how the system is designed. And I'm trying to do it in a simplified way because many people aren't as versed in finance as maybe you and I are and they don't understand. So I try to use these simple concepts to kind of explain it. And it's, it's been kind of amazing to me, the, the pushback that I get from it. To be honest, I mean, I, I find it kind of funny and interesting, but you know, I I I, I get labeled as this, this dollar cheerleader or you know this exceptional American. I think we're the greatest place in the world, and I, I think it's really important to differentiate differentiate between being an advocate and acknowledging something the way it is. You know, I'm not necessarily an advocate for this system. I don't think that this is necessarily the best system. I think there's a lot of problems with the current system. But I know I acknowledge how the system works. And if you're investing in other people's money, your job is to figure out how the system works and place capital in a way that will appreciate. And that's the, that's the that's that's the angle I'm coming from. I manage other people's money. I'm not trying to change the world. They didn't hire me to be the moral authority. They didn't hire me to be a social justice warrior. They hired me to figure out what the hell's going on and get them through it. And so that's where I'm coming from. And you know. The dollar, for better, for worse, underlies the entire global economy. Now, the idea that the, the whole global economy is going to fall and the dollar is going to fall with it, it just doesn't make sense, right? It, it falls because the dollar gets stronger. It's, it's the teeter-totter, right? You know, one is the dollar goes up and everything else comes down. Um, everything else goes up and the dollar, you know, when it goes down, you know, you can put more people on the on the on the lower end. You can more leverage up when it goes high. Now everybody's yikes! They're getting squeezed. So um, yeah. Anyway, I kind of got on a on a tangent there, but no, it it makes a lot of sense to me, to be honest. And um, it's been great to see over the years paying a strong educational effort, trying to make sure that this. Well, you call it theory, but the way I call it is just a description of how the dollar-based credit system works. That's yeah. what it is, to be honest, and, the, and its implications. I've been very good at that. I think the community owes you, Brent, for that effort. Can I ask you where people can, um, can find more about you and your milkshake theory and whatever other services you offer? Sure. Well, if you, if you go to, to either Google or YouTube and you type in either Brent Johnson, Santiago Capital, and milkshake theory, there are now you know, many, many links to, it, it, I, I actually laugh when I say it because I just find the whole thing rather amusing, but there is many, many links of interviews and, you know, the discussions and um, podcasts where, where I or I discuss this in more detail. Uh, I think most people who, 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 who know me know that I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, if you're not used to Twitter and you want to kind of follow me on kind of a regular basis, that's where I do most of my posting. Um, you know, you can find me under either Santiago Capital or you, the, the handle is at Santiago AU Fund. Um, and so, uh, yeah, come join the party. 
it's a jungle, but it's a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> what I really appreciate about you, Brian, is that you're very humble and always admit when something didn't go according to plan, which is one of the most relevant common feature I found amongst very good investors to make sure that they know when they're wrong, they cut losses and they're very uh, nimble, which you definitely are. Well, you know, if any, if, if there's any young kids or young people that are, that are watching this and they're trying to start their year or their career in finance, you know, the idea that you're never going to be wrong is really pretty arrogant, right? I mean, our, our job is to essentially predict the future and then place capital in a way that we'll, you know, appreciate as that future unfolds. The idea that we're going to predict the future perfectly is so arrogant. I can't think of anything more arrogant than that. And so once you realize that, once you realize it's very possible that you're wrong, it kind of relieves all the pressure of always being right. And so if you get something wrong, just say you got it wrong and move on to the next one. You know, I think people get so, so caught up in being right all the time. Right. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's just, that's my soapbox. I'm off my soapbox. Agreed. Thanks, Brent. Always a pleasure to talk to you.